0: It was a journey that began in 2016. It is really hard to believe that this has only been going on for approximately two years. Eight seasons, two years, the greatest show on television, not ever. Of course, that honor goes to Babylon 5, even though there's some connection with this uh, or with that that I'm, I might explain in a minute. But. The greatest show presently on television has finally come to an end. Of course, it's been succeeded by what I am now calling the greatest show on television, that being Castlevania. But what we're really talking about here is Voltron Legendary Defender Season 8. Uh, and we are going to talk about Season 8. It is the final season, 13 episodes strong. And wow, was it strong, to put it mildly. Uh, and also, as has been going on throughout 2018, just about every time I've done a season... Uh, uh, you know season wrap up for Voltron legendary defender that has been part of the animated Godzilla trilogy from uh, with the partnership between Toho and Netflix and it's hard to believe that that's only been going throughout 2018 like all three movies of that granted the last uh Well, Godzilla movie, uh, that being the Planet Eater, which is Godzilla. They're kind of calling it Godzilla three on Netflix. But anyway, that aired finally just a couple days ago, January 9th, 2019, um, a couple days from the day that this is going to end up getting released. And wow, uh, we're going to so we'll talk about Voltron season Voltron Legendary Defender season eight. We'll also kind of give an overall show wrap up uh, because now that the series is over. And as far as I know, there are no plans to do any kind of sequel or Or prequel, even though I think a prequel would be... You know, totally worthwhile to do and would probably be well regarded and welcomed, uh, frankly. But also with the Godzilla trilogy, the animated trilogy that we had on Netflix this year, we will cover that. We'll cover Godzilla the Planet Eater, which is the last movie in that trilogy. And we will also talk about Voltron Volume 3 from Lion Forge Comics, which is Voltron Legendary Defender Volume 3, which is probably going to be the last series from that. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be. A point to doing more uh, Legendary Defender comics, I would welcome them, because the comic books have largely felt just like, you know, you're watching the TV show, just you're reading it in comic book form, uh, even though they are original stories, but we'll talk about that, uh, we'll talk about Volume 3 of that as well. And that will pretty much wrap up this show, and it'll be, I guess, the last one that we do, because there's not going to be any more, uh, you know, as far as we know, there won't be, there aren't going to be any more seasons of Voltron Legendary Defender. And also that Godzilla trilogy is over. So the next uh, show that we'll probably review outside of, say, the Star Wars update or the Star Trek update will be uh, when we get Castlevania season three, which, as far as I know, is actually happening. So this is kind of bittersweet, even though, again, Voltron Legendary Defender, eight seasons. Now, granted, some of those seasons were only like five or six episodes long, but eight seasons inside of two years. That's honestly kind of weird. But then really, what makes a season anymore? You know, I mean, what even makes a TV show anymore? Um, I think really the lines of animated and live action have long been blurred. Finally, in the United States, it's been that way in Japan forever. But finally, in the United States, I think that's true. And honestly shows like a lot of Netflix animated series, uh, for example, Bojack Horseman, um, or, you know, including Voltron Legendary Defender, Castlevania, or even animated series, you know, some long running like The Simpsons to some not so long running like Rick and Morty. You know, the idea that an animated series is something for kids has long gone. I I think that ship has finally sailed in America. And uh, I think Legendary Defender had no small part in that, uh, frankly, because this was a show that literally... You know, as I've said over the years, as we've reviewed each season and I have reviewed each season as it's come out, uh, this is a show that anybody can watch. You know, I've said that every time every demographic gets appealed to in this. And that's a miracle because, you know, Star Wars tries to do that, but it doesn't always, uh, you know achieve that goal or achieve that end as to where I think Voltron did it with flying colors. No, no, uh, no pun intended there (laughs) to the colors of the lions. Uh, But wow, season eight, we got to talk about it. And it's a season, honestly, that starts off a little slow. Um, I, I, I think it was, you know, it took maybe four episodes for it to really pick up. And, you know, you're getting a lot more of what's happening on Earth and a lot more of the Well, I didn't mind getting a lot more of the Atlas, which is the ship that, you know, that that Earth, you know, Earth Force, it's not Earth Force, but that the garrison, uh, you know, developed that was a mixture of, uh, you know, human technology and Altaian technology and uh, you know it was really cool to see so much of that uh in in this season and including a lot more with the uh, w- what are effectively veritech fighters i mean it, it's so robotech you know it's almost hitting you over the head with how much they you know they were influenced by robotech to create this but uh but it was just it was so cool and the season really continued on with that with that and really that whole theme of which has been voltron legendary defenders real strength is that cool factor that it has in spades let and let me you know i want to say this quick before i forget when the soundtracks finally officially come out for this whole series you know i don't care if it's a 20 disc box set these might be the greatest soundtracks of all time. Like this might be the greatest soundtrack overall for the whole series of all time. It's so fucking intense and epic. And in fact, there's times where I was working out, especially during season eight, where I was working out while I was watching the show, you know, just to kind of get it in. And like, there's, there's times where shit so intense is happening. Like I could feel it in my workout, you know, I was able to get a couple extra reps, whatever. Uh, I mean, it's that good. You know, where the music alone has so much power and can tell so much of the story. I've got to give a ton of credit to that. And really, throughout the show overall, that's going to be my comment on the music. But Season 8, it really shined. I mean, there's some very, very intense uh, moments with the music in, in Season 8. Now, Season 8... You I, I gotta admit, as cool as everything was, I mean, there's battle after battle, there's, like, new technology, or they're, you know, they're going through, uh, spoiler alerts, folks, you know, they're going through the universal mind where all consciousness is interconnected. I mean, you had so many wild ideas get laid out in this, the multiverse where, you know, I mean, pretty much you find out what Hanerva, or who was originally, uh, you know, the witch Hagger who was working for Zarkon, of course, you find out what, what that was all about, really, and a lot of this Stemming off of season seven as well, where you find out that's Lotor's mother, and she was the wife to Emperor Zarkon, and but then she lost her memory, but then she got her memory back when she went into you know kind of the 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 pocket universe where there is so much quintessence and everything, and Lotor comes back as. And- <laughs> I, so much happens in this. Okay. There, there's just, there's a ton of shit. You find out, of course, Hanerva's real goal here is she just wants to have her family back. She wants to find the, in the multiverse, she wants to find the alternate universe, the perfect universe where Lotor, her son is treated with respect by Emperor Zarkon or by Zarkon and where she is married to Zarkon and she can live happily ever after. And, you know, I'll tell you, like, it, it's pretty amazing in In a world, it seems, in a, in a world of entertainment, and I'm speaking very broadly, not just about Netflix or Voltron Legendary Defender, in a world of entertainment where it seems like writers really suck ass at creating villains, uh, Voltron Legendary Defender has not really had that problem, which is pretty impressive for a lot of reasons, but you really get, you start to feel bad, you know, there's points in season eight where you feel bad for Zarkon, because Zarkon comes back. There's points where you actually feel bad for Lotor, even though that's been going on over the past, you know, few seasons, really. Uh, ever since, I guess, pretty much season four, uh, when Lotor entered the scene, is, you know, you do have some empathy for him. And you really end up having empathy for Hanerva or Hagger, you know, depending on, on at what point the character is in. It's the same person, of course. And. I was amazed by that like I genuinely felt bad for Hunerva and like I understood sort of what she was trying to do the problem is is that for her to find her alternate universe and she's trying to harness all the quintessence and you know pretty much enslave all of the Alteans which she's Altean but enslave all the Alteans to use their power and their collective quintessence to you know to rip into other universes pretty much Uh, and there's a really cool moment where actually Voltron rips into another universe and it does so by literally slicing a hole with the blazing sword in the universe, uh, that's actually like fairly accurate science is that, you You know, theoretically you could, if there are multiverses, if there are alternate universes, you could rip a hole into them if you heated a section of our universe enough. I mean, we're you know, superheat wouldn't even be the word to, to describe it, but that, that is actually fair science. Uh, and, that, you know, that's another thing that we get a lot of on display, incredible accurate science, like the white hole comes back in this, which that's a genuine theory, uh, and they play it up very... Very well uh, in in Voltron legendary defender, as they have been for the past couple of seasons, uh, so you get the white hole coming back, but then also a lot of the you know concepts around Altaean alchemy, which once again there are some very I think there are some concepts within Voltron Legendary Defender that are very rare, but are a genuine part of alchemy, as we would understand it coming out of the Enlightenment that doesn't get talked about much. So I found that to be very interesting uh, within the show once again. But that's that's been a strength with the show for really ever since the beginning. And I've talked about it since the beginning. But anyway, maybe the most impressive feat of season eight is that you end up getting you end up feeling bad for all of the villains that have been developed over these eight seasons. Um, There are a lot of other really cool things that happen within within this season. Uh, I'll tell you, like now that you have after eight seasons, you have such a great cast of characters like secondary characters and so on uh, that are so much fun or even the primary characters. There were a couple couple breathers within the 13 episodes of season eight. And one of the one of the breathers was there's there's a time where they, they go. They have they celebrate this day like this holiday on this planet that they want to help out. And, you know, of course, have them be part of the uh, Voltron force. And while they're celebrating everything there, they well, I mean, they're already part of the Voltron coalition, I should say, not the Voltron force, but the Voltron coalition. And while they're there, like, Shiro's kind of walking around. Everybody's going around at this carnival and everything to celebrate this, this holiday. And there is, they're having, like, an arm wrestling tournament. And Shiro ends up joining the arm wrestling tournament. Now, he has, like, a robotic arm, so he kind of kicks ass through a lot of it. But then there also there's other contestants who have robotic arms. But it was very much... Like watching, it was almost, I mean, they really played it up and they did the cheesy music and, you know, kind of the cheesy presentation and everything where it was very reminiscent, and I'm sure this was intentional, of Sylvester Stallone's movie Over the Top, which I I still think that movie is, I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's so much fun at the same time. I mean, as long as you understand its cheesiness and for... I mean, Shiro ends up becoming the champion. <laughs> like He takes it all the way. And it was just it was just a fun little episode for them to do. Uh, there's another breather where they go through kind of and, and I know other shows that do this. And in fact, I'm going to compare this to The Greatest Show of All Time because it did a similar thing. Uh, they did an episode where it's kind of a documentary style episode where, you know, somebody has a camera and they're going around in a day of the life of um, you know, whatever's happening or wherever they happen to be. In this case, it was aboard the Atlas. uh, And that was kind of a cool episode. I mean, it's sort of a trope now, but at the same time, I understand why if, you know, some... if the producers or the writers want to end up doing this, you know, if Mitch Iverson, one of the primary writers for the show, uh, ends up wanting to do this, I mean, hey, you know, who am I to stop him? Um, but I'll tell you, you know, that speaks of and we're, we're going to get into some of the bigger things that happened within the season, because there were some major there was some major, major shit that went down. Um, But this all really reminded me of what is genuinely the greatest show of all time, the greatest television show of all time, which most people know me, know what it is, know what I say it is, and that is Babylon 5. This really felt like... Season four slash season five of Babylon five, where it felt like there were was season eight. So it was season four of Babylon five, J. Michael Straczynski, who made that show, which, by the way, J. Michael Straczynski, this is the connection with Babylon five also uh, created and was the lead writer for uh, Voltron, the third dimension, which was a 90s uh, continuation, shall we say, or c- kind of a reimagining of, of Voltron uh, long before. You know, Voltron Legendary Defender was a gleam in anyone's eye long before Netflix was even a gleam in anyone's eye. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, this is Voltron has attracted great writing in the past because I think J. Michael Straczynski is certainly one of the greatest writers in history, uh, certainly within Hollywood anyway. And with season four of Babylon 5, Straczynski didn't know if he was going to get a season five. He had a five year plan, but he didn't know if he was going to get that that season five. So he rushed a bunch of storylines to come to completion in season four. In fact, there is even, much like in season eight of uh, Voltron Legendary Defender, there was a documentary episode within that. Uh, and, you know, where, where someone's going around with a camera and interviewing everybody, you, you know, and so on. Uh, I would not be surprised. If because of the fact that, you know, I imagine that Laura, Laura Montgomery, you know, one of the producers and, and, you know, main brains behind the show and who's uh, Joaquin DeSantos and also, of course, Mitch Iverson and so on. I imagine they pulled from Voltron's history all of the different I mean, there's been like three different Voltron shows that are actually Voltron, not like Beast King, Beast King, Go Lion or anything like that. And so they probably knew Straczynski's work. They probably knew about Babylon 5 as well. In fact, I think most people in Hollywood know about Babylon 5. They just don't want anyone else to know about it because then they're going to want to watch it and they're going to find out how shitty the shows they make are. But, you know, Voltron Legendary Defender is actually a great show. So I, I could imagine they pulled some of that, you know, like they said, oh, yes, yeah, Straczynski did this. Let's copy that. Let's copy that. And I I feel like Lauren Montgomery and the rest of the crew with Voltron Legendary Defender didn't know how long they would have. And even the way the seasons have been split up and the episode numberings and everything have been kind of weird. I get the sense that maybe they had to maybe they thought they were going to get 10 seasons and then they ended up only getting eight and they had to wrap up a bunch of storylines in season eight because some of it felt a little rushed. Like there's so much going on when you're watching the season, you can't blink. I mean, you just, you can't blink because, you know, ne- you, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen next to I me mean, before you know it, you know, the, the Atlas and Voltron have merged to become like this, this super Voltron. And that actually happens. I mean, it just happens out of nowhere though. And you don't really get an explanation why no one get. I mean, you do get an explanation as to what happens. It has to do with the Balmora, uh, you know, like merging it with, with whatever quintessence that they can kind of blast out. Uh, but that was such a cool moment. <laughs> but I mean, if you blink it, it happens and you're going and, and you see it in action and and it's not an action for long because, again, a lot of things did feel rushed. So while at first it felt like a slower season, it's like in the second half of the season, which maybe originally was supposed to be a season nine or so. Uh, things really pick up the pace. There's a point. Lotor gets brought back and inside of an episode or two, Lotor becomes merged with whatever Hanover doing. I, I mean, like, you get no time to even deal with the fact that Lotor has come back. Uh, you get more time to handle Zarkon kind of coming back, and you get a return of the original Paladins and so on, which it was cool to see, you know, King Arfor and, and, and whatever, you know, return, and you, you get some interaction with the, you know, with the OG uh, Paladins, you know, that, that flew Voltron originally 10,000 years ago and so on. But bottom line, a whole hell of a lot happens here. Now, the big thing that everybody's talking about, and spoiler alerts, folks, because in the last episode, pretty much it appears that Princess Alora dies. She joins forces with Hinerva. Hinerva has a crisis of conscience, blah, blah, blah. And they end up, because in with Hinerva trying to find this reality, this alternate reality, this alternate universe where she can have a family and be happy which mean who wouldn't want that? Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, if if a family's your thing, like it, it it totally makes sense. Again, that's why you can have empathy for the character. Um, In her in so in her doing so, in trying to find this alternate reality, when she finds it and stays there, it's going to destroy all other realities. And that's kind of the the real danger, the real crux, the real threat um, that the Voltron force is trying to very much handle. So but when it does that um, or, you know, when basically that starts to happen. But to bring it all back, Princess Allura says, look, Lotor, you know, showed me how to also create life, not just destroy it. And, you know, with your and my power together, Allura and Hanover together, we can restore uh, pretty much the multiverse. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Now, a lot of people have complained about Allura, Princess Allura dying. Um, I feel like, like much of season eight, it felt rushed. Like, that's something, A, we should have had more time to deal with her death. Like, I would have loved, kind of like with Castlevania, where I applauded Castlevania in season two for having an entire episode that just dealt with the aftermath of the great battle, you know, like between Alucard and, you know, and and, and so on, you know, and and Dracula. Um, Yeah, I I would have loved to have had that episode, even though you good, you do get a good eight. You know, seven, eight minutes of aftermath, uh, you know, where and, and you find out some pretty cool things like that. That hunk, you know, becomes like this culinary ambassador and brings worlds together through food, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, Lance becomes a farmer. Of course, he falls in love. I mean, that's another storyline that was kind of rushed is that you have Lance and Allura falling in love more or less getting married, and you know, like, then she just dies. And I would have loved to have explored that relationship more, and you could have had so many great stories. Where either Lance or Allura, one of them is in trouble and the others in love and need, you know, that's their lover and they need to go save them and so on. And that could have been so cool, but that didn't really happen either. But I mean, I do appreciate, like, I'm glad that she ended up with Lance and not with Keith. And of course, she wasn't going to end up with Shiro, which, by the way, kind of the last, almost the last uh, 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 clip or the last little, I don't, I don't know, a g- scene, you could almost call it a scene that you see with uh, with Voltron Legendary Defender is you see Shiro getting married to a guy, and they kiss, and they finally, finally kiss. Um, I thought that was great. There was actually a lot of moments throughout season eight. In fact, there's one of the Galra who, you know, she was one of the lieutenants for Lotor. You find out she has both dated men and women. Um, I thought that was really cool, you know. I mean, so once again, really the social forward thinking in this show was on full display uh, within season eight. So I liked that. You find out that Pidge's family pretty much, you know, becomes in charge of... You know, creating like the the next generation of legendary defenders and so on. That's cool. Uh, Keith, you find Keith pretty much gets offered to become like the leader of or the emperor of the Galra Empire, which I think is. I mean, that was such a cool little twist. But again, you only get to spend a few minutes with that fact. And that very much smacked also of Babylon 5, where you have this, you know, character who you wouldn't think would become emperor, but like, you know, the character of Lando Malari in Babylon 5, where he eventually does become emperor, or even like Veer, how Veer Koto becomes, you know, emperor of the, of the Centauri Republic, uh, you know, in Babylon 5. It felt kind of like that, though it's cool because Keith says, no, I don't want to do it. And you find out that Keith's ultimate fate is that he, not ultimate is in his death, but he turns the Blade of Marmora into, which, of course, he had been a part of for a few seasons now, he turns that into like a humanitarian aid organization. And I thought that was really slick. I thought that was cool. Uh, So, you know, they did they did a lot and they show you who ends up, you know, kind of the Gulra more or less join the Voltron coalition. And it basically ends with the lion's. Leaving like they're they're I guess they're not needed anymore. So they go off into space and that's that's more or less how the you know how the show ends. It was a fine ending. I would have loved to have spent more time with it. And again, there seemed to be so many storylines that were so rushed. You easily could have gotten two more seasons just out of the story being told in season eight, but just expanding upon that. And I, I really wish we would have gotten that, but I'm not going to let it take anything away from the show. This is still one of the best shows ever made. Um, if you wanted to differentiate animated series, this is certainly one of the top animated series in history. Uh, in my opinion, it is so funny. And the laughs were still like laugh out loud stuff for me in season eight. Uh, <laughs> like there's there's a the really uh, smart guy that like can figure out all the different. He figures out all the different permutations for what could happen in the future. And he's like, all right. You need to wear different socks. Otherwise, the probability of us, you know, making this mission work is going to be bad. And and there's just like little jokes like that that are just so goddamn funny. Um, Yeah, I mean, season eight didn't disappoint, but it just went too fast. And and it's a shame because I think if maybe if the writers, if Mitch Iverson and Lauren Montgomery and all of them, you know, if they knew just the kind of time frame that they would have, maybe they could have spaced this out a little bit better and pasted a little bit better. Because, you know, I think back to like season three and season four, parts of season four, there's parts of season 4 that They're incredibly exciting. But I think back to some of the earlier seasons and they spent way too much time on on certain aspects uh, of things and i mean but they did i'll wrap it all uh, you know i'll give them credit they wrapped it all in a very nice bow like there is no need for any future entries into the series like i said i wouldn't mind seeing a prequel i wouldn't mind seeing a sequel movie where princess allura comes back because you don't exactly see her die right i mean it's it's and i'm pretty sure one of the producers have, have come out and said oh yeah she's dead but You know, there's wiggle room like you're not seeing her body vaporized uh, effectively. At least I didn't feel that you really saw that. So I don't think that and especially since Voltron is explicitly saying there's a multiverse, there's a universe where Princess Allura is probably still alive and she could come back. Uh, So I could see doing more in the future, but I don't know that that's going to happen. And it seems like everybody's more or less accepting the finality uh, of season eight. So. You know, overall, again, what more can I say it, it, that I haven't talked about before when we reviewed every season of Voltron Legendary Defender? It is absolutely one of the best shows ever made. I mean, and, and it was the and for the two years that it's been running from 2016 to 2018. It was consistently the best show, quote unquote, on television. I mean, it just was. And I think it would be fascinating to see people. I'd, I'd love to hear reviews from people that can like binge watch all eight seasons at once and like, because that that's going to be a fucking wild ride. I mean, even though we only ever, ever had to wait a few months in between seasons, you know, over the past couple of years, I mean, that's gotta be a trip to fucking experience that. Holy shit. You know, and for a lot, I imagine there would be a lot of connections that would make more sense. Um, and that leads us into reviewing Voltron, uh, legendary defender volume three of the comic book series, which has a, which is, it's a five issue series, uh, limited series, just like volume one and volume two were. And just like those where it's a, it's a story that takes place between certain episodes. And it is, as far as I know, they are Canon because Mitch Iverson who writes the comic books is also one of the main writers for Voltron, you know, for Voltron legendary defender. So he would know. And this story for volume three takes place between season four and season five. So we don't know, or the Voltron force doesn't know that Lotor is the bad guy yet, but you can really tell what's happening here in the timing of this release. It's a, perfectly fine story they're rescuing a bunch of planets more or less from this giant space creature in the galra like that that's a gist that happens throughout legendary defender certainly the cartoon and but what what it serves is really reminding you that even at that time you know four seasons ago okay that a lot of points brought up in season 8 about the various characters lance you know Keith, even uh, and Alora and Shiro and so on. That you know the it's it serves as a reminder that these characters have always been about this. Like there's a lot of talk about Hunk being the food guy within it, which becomes which is a central factor in the last ten minutes, we'll say, of uh, you know of, of of the last episode of season eight of Legendary Defender. So the story is pretty run of the mill, but it is like a refresher, and I think that's why they released those five issues throughout the. From September, I think, to December or end of November, or maybe it was like August, August to 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 end of November, they released all five issues. It really did serve as a reminder of a lot of plot points that would come up in season eight that maybe you forgot were set up for, you know, four seasons previous. Um, And that's really that it's all about. It's great. I mean, it's a perfectly serviceable story, perfectly enjoyable. You know, it's just like again, it's just like watching an episode, but you're reading it. And you get the humor. There's there's more laugh out loud moments in it. uh, And there's tremendous action, uh, not as tremendous of action as happens in season eight. I mean, the actions nuts that happened in season eight of Voltron Legendary Defender. I mean, it just and it doesn't. It's at such a crazy clip, too. Um, But, yeah, volume three perfectly readable you know to, totally if you love legendary defender absolutely read all three volumes each one has been great each one has been like just watching an episode like I said uh, but this one does serve to remind you that again a lot of things were put in place long before that end up coming to fruition in or become important with various Voltron characters in season eight uh, and I, I I really yeah I, I loved it and it was great to read it before then because again it did set you up for that uh, so great timing on you know on the team's part on line forges part, you know, and and certainly Mitch Iverson did a great job, you know, again, putting all these well, putting a bow on everything pretty much. So Voltron Legendary Defender, it is over. It's in kind of an end of an era because I still think everybody is in shock that it was that fucking good, but it was that fucking good and it'll go down. I don't know if it's going to be like in my top 10 shows of all time. But it's going to be it's, it's easily in my top 25. You know, I, I still think it was that great. Uh, I would have loved if it had a little more sexy. I would have loved if they could have been a little more explicit and not, you know, appeal to the kids, to the little kids a little less. But I get it. I understand why they had to do what they did. And I still think, you know, Laura Montgomery's brilliant. She's a genius. Mitch Iverson's a genius. You know, uh, Joaquin DeSantos. I mean, they're, they're all obviously brilliant with what they put on what they put on the panel. And, and and you just you see it, you know, so just a tremendous show. Again, I wouldn't mind if they did more with it. If they want to go full franchise with it, I don't think that would hurt Netflix at all. Um, but we'll see what the future holds. Now, something that I think really is finality or has finality, and I can't imagine there's ever going to be any more done with it. And talk about being wrapped up in a nice package with a nice little bow on it. That is the animated Godzilla trilogy um, on Netflix, which the last uh, entry in that, which is Godzilla 3, The Planet Eater. Uh, you know, did did finally just come out on January 9th, 2019 on Netflix. And why don't we go ahead and get into our review of that? Ooh, well, uh, you know, I got to say, opening it up. I mean, I loved the first two movies um, in this series. I dare say the third one is still great, but it's easily the weakest of the bunch. Uh, the first two, of course, the first one being planet of the monsters. Uh, and then the second one was uh, city on the edge of battle. And now the third one, which we're reviewing here is the planet eater. And they do comprise one whole story. I mean, you really could watch this as one, I suppose, total runtime had run about five hours, perhaps but there's no real great span of time between each one they really take place one after the other i'm sure they were actually all made at the same time and they just kind of drew out the release a bit um which is fine and it they all pick up pretty well from each other like i you definitely need to see the previous films they they are in no way standalone whatsoever but you know if it's been a few months since you saw the last one they give you a little reintroduction as to uh, to what's going on And this is I mean, this really does have finality and it is truly a conclusion. There is not going to be any there will be no further stories, um, I don't think, within this. Uh, In fact, honestly, spoiler alerts, um, it's somewhat suggested that Godzilla is dead at the end of this. I mean, granted, in this trilogy, in this animated trilogy of Godzilla, You've had multiple Godzillas, so maybe there's other ones out there, but kind of the big bad that they were, you know, that was highlighting, at least certainly in the last film uh, that took on Mecha Godzilla City, uh, that that one could possibly be gone. You're not it's not entirely clear at the end of it. But anyway, this is the continuing story of Hauro, who is kind of the hero uh, from the previous two films. And I was, I mean, the animation, the soundtrack, all that stuff is still just as rock solid as it was in the first two. Uh, the voice acting is largely great. Um, and you get the return of, you know, the usual suspects within this trilogy. Uh, you have, you know, Memphis is back, um, you know, and, and pretty much everyone else. Now, the third one, this does what was hinted at in previous films in the trilogy is this does end. I mean, let's just cut to it. This, this does end with, uh, Ghidra versus Godzilla. Now, interestingly in the English dub of this, and I didn't watch the Japanese dub In the English dub, they do call him Ghidorah. Uh, they don't call him Ghidra. I, I've heard it said both ways and it depends on, I guess, really who's, who's doing the, um, the translating, the, or the dubbing, uh, as far as how that goes. But, they were saying Ghidorah. I'm so used to saying Ghidra or King Ghidra. They don't bother to call him King in this. Uh, It's interesting though, while Ghidorah is a kind of a three-headed monster in this, Ghidorah is actually a creature from another universe uh, that has varying abilities to fight Godzilla. Uh, I mean, it's a very, look, it's a super complex story, and the third movie just makes it all the more complex, okay? Uh, it, it's really interesting because, you know, the, what got set up in the first movie is that you have all of the, you know, you had three different races. You had the humans, uh, you had the, the, what is it, the Belo Saludo, and then you had the Exif, Okay, and you had these three different races that you know they'd all lost their homes to various monsters, uh, and the two races, the Saluto and the Exif, came to Earth and tried to help humans with Godzilla, but of course they end up all kind of getting to de- you know defeated by this. And while the first movie is the humans trying to put an end to the monster, okay, that being Godzilla in that case, the second movie is definitely about the Bella Saludo, uh, you know, coming up with their solution. And in fact, in the third movie, you get a different perspective on their solution. You more or less find out that the Bella Saludo came up with Mecha Godzilla and Mecha Godzilla City with the nanometal, and that that was actually designed to conquer the Earth, not really to defeat Godzilla like it would have defeated Godzilla. Then it would have been used to defeat the humans. If anything, it would have sucked in the humans like it was in in uh, uh, City on the Edge of Battle, the, the second Godzilla uh, movie in this trilogy. You know, it would have sucked them into where they would have powered the machine more and become one with the metal and become one with Mechagodzilla anyway, uh, which is interesting. And but it's it's interesting that the humans in the third movie come right out and say that was your weapon for invad- mechagodzilla was your weapon for invading the earth. And so the bella are just not trusted and they're more or less out of the picture in this picture. Uh, So this one is all about what the EXIF, uh, you know, actually their solution against Godzilla and what they want to do. Well, their solution is what they consider their God, which is the monster that destroyed their planet, that being Ghidorah or Ghidra. I'll try and say Ghidorah since that's how they pronounce it in it. Um, and there's a lot of, just like in the, in the previous two films, there is some heavy duty philosophy and ideology in this. And I mean, heavy, heavy shit. In fact, really what you find out is that the grand overall message, okay, you get, you get your battle between, you know, I mean, there, there's some stuff that happens between Haro and Memphis and so on, you know, the humans and the exif, but you do get your somewhat of a battle. In fact, it's actually, it's, it's admittedly kind of anticlimactic, like, it's not a big, bad monster battle between Ghidorah and Godzilla, which I kind of would have wa- I kind of wanted, but I get what they were going for. And it is kind of surprising that they didn't go with a, you know, let's go with this classic battle. I mean, that is kind of the classic kaiju battle, which is Godzilla versus Ghidorah. There's also a nice save in this film, admittedly, by Mothra. Mothra! And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But what this Kind of the overall message of these movies turns out to be when you finally get to the third one is this is really a play on the great filter. Now, they don't say that by name, but that's really what they're getting at is the Exif believe that any time a civilization really starts to develop technology and so on, uh, that eventually they get to the point where they create a monster greater than the the race that created the technology and then that is nature kind of nature's way or the universe's way of bringing balance back is the creation of this monster and you know real it's it's funny because in a way that, in fact one of the humans says this not even the exi who are like a religious species and again they worship Ghidorah, uh the hum- a human claims very early on in the third film saying you know hey maybe humans were created by the universe or god to Bring, you know, to birth monsters like Godzilla, like kind of like the old George Carlin skit, right? Where George Carlin says, you know, maybe humans were the earth's wet, were were created so the earth uh, could have plastic, right? (laughs) And that humans weren't the point. Plastic was the point. Uh, And kind of a similar idea, but in this case, instead of plastic, you know, we were designed to birth Godzilla. And that's an interesting concept to bring up. There is, again, some philosophy in the whole matter where. I think it's actually Memphis who's saying that, you know, monsters are called monsters because they are beyond human intellect to destroy. Like, so a monster is anything that's kind of beyond human. I'll admit I kind of like that quote out of context because, you know, sometimes I like to think of myself as a monster. But (laughs) anyway, um, yeah. So, again, a lot a lot of that philosophy, uh, you know, in there and. Another the other point that you get is that really the you find out the exif and pretty much Memphis, who you think is Haruo's friend in the previous two films, you more or less find out Memphis is really and and that the uh, the exif in general, the few exif that are left are really just priests that are vanguards to bring Ghidorah, you know, in from his other dimension using hate from whatever species is on the world, in this case, humans on Earth. Uh, you know, to to like bring on that God. And in fact, it's interesting. It's basically saying that the like there there is sort of this underlying philosophical message. Again, none of it ever really hits you over the head, but it's very much hinted at. And I don't think I'm reading into it like there's quotes that you can pull where it seems fairly obvious, not over not hitting you over the head, but fairly obvious where it's saying that really religion and gods come out of hate. In fact, heroes come out of hate and, and so on. And, and so there's almost like an anti-religion, anti-hero kind of message in this Of course. Also, there's that anti-technology message um, that's a major part of this film. I mean, this is really intellectual stuff, intellectual stuff on a level that Godzilla as a franchise generally doesn't hit, even though the first Godzilla film from the 50s was certainly a commentary on World War II, on, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. OK. And, you know, the A-bomb. Uh, and there may have been other like Shin Godzilla, the kind of the latest live action Godzilla film certainly had a kind of had a, a broader point to bring up. But this is, again, highly, highly philosophical and ideological. Uh, a lot of the points that they're bringing up were very interesting. And then, I mean, you pretty much find out the XC, they, they come to this conclusion that, you know, like we figured out how to travel through time there, you know, and they start getting into almost like a Carlo Rovelli explanation of time that there is no future, no tomorrow, but that eternity doesn't exist and that the great blessing is destruction. And they're more or less talking about the great filter, saying that, you know, eventually every civilization brings on its own monster, its own destruction, and that you should just accept that that's going to be a thing. Uh, of course for the Exif, it's Ghidorah that they actually bring in from, from an alternate uh, universe. And yeah, that, you know, again, as far as how much you want to agree with some of the messages in these films, you know, that's up to personal taste. Uh, some of it, I thought, was actually very insightful, uh, personally. And again, it's not something that I think I'm interpreting what they're saying. I think it's what they're genuinely saying. And I'm sure if there were some kind of interviews uh, with the creators on this, that they would probably explain more of that commentary. Um, the Maybe the most interesting thing is kind of the, the aftermath of what happens, because... For various reasons, you know, and and again, it's hard to like actually explain in audio because so much of what goes on is very visual, and there's not much talking. You have to see what's happening to really explain it. But basically, Godzilla does finally, you know, beat uh, Ghidorah, and Memphis ends up get get ends up getting offed, and so on. Um, Now, in the second film, actually, I think it was the end of the first film, but in the second film, you find out more about the kind of the future descendants um, on Earth, perhaps humans that like evolved in a certain way after however many tens of thousands of years that these movies take place after the 20th century. And they really did some interesting things with with those. They just call them the natives. I don't think they ever gave them a name. Um, They did some interesting things with those characters in this. And they really take a center stage. Like you find out that the natives have developed telepathy. Um, And also, I I mean, there's a point where uh, Mira and her sister actually you find out that Mira and her sister, they're really like these natives are just the anime equivalent of the twins from, you know, the island where they bring on Mothra from, you know, the twins that always sing, Mothra! you know, that whole business, which I thought was really cool. I didn't put that together that that was them, obviously, because usually in the, in the movies when they are calling for Mothra, you know, they're like maybe a foot tall. And it's where this, they're, they're normal sized. In fact, Mira, one of the two sisters, I mean, there's a whole species of them, but uh, you know, these natives who are really the descendants of humans. Um, but Mira ends up stooping Hauro you know, and like falls in love with him and everything. And I, oh, I, I just thought it was very sweet and very sexy at the same time. I, I really, I love the fact that we got some sex in this or at least heavily implied. I mean, you don't like, you know, see the fucking, but that's fine. But it was heavily, heavily implied. um, And I, I enjoyed that. And even they have. So basically after Ghidra is defeated by Godzilla, um, the humans like the, Because of somebody left over, they get access to nanometal, and they find out that the nanometal can remember all of the technology it's ever touched, and so they could effectively rebuild civilization. So Hauro takes that source of nanometal—it's actually a person—takes the source of nanometal and rams it into Godzilla, okay? And, you know, it is assumed that Hauro, the nanometal, and potentially Godzilla himself or herself is destroyed, Uh, at that moment, you know, when, when he rams that in, uh, and, and it's all gone and then it goes, I don't know, a hundred or however many years in the future after that. And, you know, there's like a bit of a time lapse that goes on and you see as the humans integrate with the natives more and they become one species. And then, you know, it's far in the future and they're pretty much like, there's kind of a memorial that they're having to Haro, who they see as a very real hero, and uh, they have it would appear that the natives and there are the hybrids of the natives and the humans, which, again, the natives are really just future humans, have eschewed technology and they're just going to continue to live a primitive life and, you know, kind of be one with nature and all that. And that way they don't end up creating another monster and they break the cycle um, that the Exif were claiming happens to every world where monsters get created and destroy the world. Again, I mean, very anti technology message. Right. And and saying, like, getting back to nature and all that stuff. And I can on a certain level, I can appreciate that. In fact, I really think, you know, one of the beautiful things of if we not, if when we do as a species, as humans go to outer space and we're able to potentially, for lack of a better term, colonize other worlds, I hope that the people that are kind of into rewilding, ironically, of course, because they'd be using spacecraft to get there, but ironically, get to do their little bit of rewilding and live their natural lives. I mean, go ahead. You know, I want people to be able to practice whatever kind of lifestyle they fucking want. You know, if they want to if you want to go out there and, you know, live in the cave or the woods, whatever, and, you know, not worry about technology and all that. Frankly, if you've been listening to Sovereign Tech long enough you fucking would. <laughs> I mean it, it almost seemed to be the logical conclusion. So, you know, I can appreciate that and I can really appreciate the message overall. In fact, really Voltron season 8 had somewhat of a similar message where there was this constant you know, message of like Princess Alora would say it, um even when they would bring on uh, the creatures that like naturally have quintessence and everything that that was it the Balmora do uh, not to be confused with the Bella Saludo that we mentioned in for for Godzilla. But the Balmora and, and uh, Voltron Legendary Defender, they're basically space whales, you know, that happen to have like a, an entire species of bipeds that live inside of them. You know, this idea that technology can't solve everything was very pervasive in Voltron Legendary Defender Season 8. And it's definitely a major message in this Godzilla animated trilogy. And I think that really comes out of, both for Voltron and for Godzilla, personally, I think that comes out of that. You know, I say, I've i said this many times on Sovereign Tech, that we're not ready for the level of technology that we have. And I think a lot of people in some ways recognize that and because they recognize that uh they want to you know they're so confused by it they're they're dreaming of a of a golden age or a simpler time perhaps and this happens with any like major change in i mean this happened you can find writings like this during the industrial age in the early 20th century uh and i think in a very real way these are the modern writings of that i mean one could almost argue that this i mean this is going to sound weird but That this Godzilla trilogy animated trilogy is very much the modern Japanese version of, you know, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Right. (laughs) Like, get away from everything and just shut it all down, you know, and ram it into the biggest monster. You can take that technology and ram it into the biggest monster you can find. And I can really appreciate why people feel that way. Like, I can empathize and I can understand where they're coming from. Okay, And, you know, effectively, the humans go native at the end of this. And, you know, in Japanese film, you get a lot of that. Like, I mean, even one of my favorites, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, uh, that's one where there's this message of, you know, we're hurting the earth. I mean, the Japanese have very much have like an environmentalist bent but their environmentalist bent doesn't come from the same like government and corporatist uh, angles that reinforce it in America. Theirs comes really from Shinto. It comes from their culture, you know, thousands of years old of their culture. And so that for that message to appear more in Japanese cinema, Uh, it's, I think it's a little more genuine than perhaps it may be like other people feel it's perhaps not so genuine in, uh, American film and American TV shows and so on. And, you know, there's debates to be had around that. Personally, I give a goddamn about the environment. Yes, I do. And, you know, ecology is a very real science and I am on board. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I get, you know, I can see where there are elements of either of both sides of this argument that that have validity. And so but but for the Japanese, I mean, this is really a part of their culture. This kind of message is very deep for them. And it's been in their It's really been in their cinema for a while. But also, I think it's just getting more and more pervasive as technology becomes, you know, imminently more pervasive there. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's how they react as they make a Godzilla movie that becomes an anti-tech creed. You know, and I mean, that's very much what I feel like this this trilogy was, again, about the great filter and at its core is about being in touch with nature to where you don't create the monster of your own destruction you know i think that's really the message uh, going out and from an artistic perspective again i can really appreciate that i can really respect what they're putting out there i'm not saying i agree with it 100 percent. i'm just saying that i can really respect what what they were trying to say um with it so anyway it might be a weird thing for a tech journalist to say but there you have it <laughs> so all right that'll wrap it up for this um Again, you know, we probably won't do any kind of TV show review until maybe Castlevania season three. There's nothing else that's really on my radar. Uh, You know, anything Star Wars or Star Trek. I do specific shows for those um, that are about more than just TV shows. So but that's where those would end up. Um, There's nothing really. You know, I got so many people telling me, oh, watch the Orville. Oh, watch this. Watch this. Some of the things like there was the Dragon Prince and uh, maybe that Sabrina show. Like I've checked them out and maybe I'll rev- like I would review them on a Q&A, but there's nothing that I've watched where I'm just like, holy shit, I need to dedicate an entire episode of, you know, I, I need to make an episode just to review this. I just... I haven't really experienced that in film. I haven't experienced that on TV. I haven't. I just haven't really experienced that uh, in a long time. And Voltron: Legendary Defender was a very special uh, resurgence of some very real nostalgia that ended up, you know, becoming much more than the sum of its parts. Uh, the God, I mean, I've been a kaiju fan forever, so you know, to review a Godzilla animated Godzilla trilogy. Dynamite. I mean, and really my only critique of the God, you know, all right, I'll tell you this. Here's one one problem I had with the Godzilla trilogy. I wanted Mechagodzilla. I wanted to see Mechagodzilla really in action, not Mechagodzilla City like in City on the Edge Battle. I wanted to fucking see Mechagodzilla. And I was a little disappointed that I didn't. And like I said, also, I wanted that Kaiju battle in the end. But it was meant to be something very different. And it was just fortuitous. That the conversation around the Godzilla trilogy matched up with uh, releases of Voltron: Legendary Defender, so it kind of came together. So don't don't expect these too often. Um, I again, again, I just. I can't really picture the show that would come out that would just blow my mind uh, like Legendary Defender did or the trilogy that would have the, you know, franchise cachet that, you know, that that Godzilla does um, with me. So anyway, that's it for this. It's been fun uh, reviewing Legendary Defender. I really do hope that something will come out in the future. Um, I wouldn't mind if I don't think the Godzilla movies, there's just no they ended it. I cannot picture that there is going to be a continuation of this in any way, nor would there be a TV series like that. it wouldn't even make sense. You know, there, there is absolute finality to it. So that's over. So anyway, so is this episode. Plenty more content to come out for patrons uh, throughout the month of January 2019. I will see all of you woo, on the other side.